0: This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. How do you like that? The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Correct, correct, correct. Good luck. We care about your world. Stay tuned. Civil the narrator, social commentator
1: Socially commentating, what they stipulating
0: Are you sitting comfortably? Or put your seatbelts on, cause you're in for a howling ride Cause I am the narrator, the voice, the guides, the blind Following up with your ears, but your mind And allow me to take you back on four free time To explain the significance of things you may think insignificant Good morning. I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour, a show that seeks out and explores new ideas, new ways of seeing, and new ways of being and relating with each other and in the world around us. My guest, Lena Sklove, embodies all of that in her work. Lena is a graduating Goddard student who will be presenting her senior study this coming Sunday and receiving her Bachelor of Arts degree. She has written a beautiful, moving novel as part of her senior study that weaves together the stories of five characters of cultural and racial diversity struggling with their sense of place and identity in a mythical town in Massachusetts. The title of her novel is Someday We'd Go Back. Race, Trauma, Home, and Identity in Writing for Social Justice. Lena, welcome. Thank
1: you so much for having me.
0: It's great to have you. I really, really enjoyed the book.
1: I'm so glad. Thank you so much for reading it.
0: And congratulations on your graduation.
1: Thank you very much. I'm excited.
0: So how did you come to Goddard and why Goddard?
1: Um, it's a great question, you know, I had some unexpected life circumstances as we all do and I was really excited by the opportunity to work so closely one-on-one with a faculty advisor and really build a strong relationship with, with them and have them really know me and my work in a way that um, isn't really possible as much in traditional educational settings and at the time I needed to be home with my family and so it was really great that I was able to study long distance. Mm. Yeah.
0: So how did you come to write this novel?
1: So, you know, I had done writing before, but I actually hadn't really done much fiction writing before I did this project. I had done a few short stories, but mostly my writing was nonfiction. And in the winter of 2014, I had a very bad back injury, and I was not able really to get out of bed and I was pretty isolated. I was home with my family in Massachusetts and I was pretty lonely and, and felt really, you know, separate and isolated from the people who are important to me other than my parents. And so I sort of just started to write these characters kind of just to keep me company. Um, and I tried to think like, okay, well, who do I want to hang out with? You know, who, what, what kinds of people and energies do I want around me? And then I created them in these characters and then the characters started to talk to each other and meet and interact. And I kind of realized, oh, I think I might be writing a bit more of a plot line than I had thought. So that was the initial um, very like rough draft. And then when I got to Goddard, I sort of picked it back up after putting it down for a little while.
0: So how did these characters manifest? Were these conversations or things that were evolving in your mind while you were thinking about it or did they happen as you were writing?
1: It was this weird thing, you know, and I've heard other writers, you know, I know Alice Walker talks about this, of sort of, like, feeling like her characters speak through her, and, you know, I never really knew what that meant when I've heard other writers talk about it, but it really was this, you know, I remember just sitting there and knowing who these people were, just, you know, even though I just had created them, you know, but they really felt like they presented themselves to me and made themselves known through me sort of. So they felt like they already existed and I just got to discover them versus me creating them bit by bit. I didn't feel like I was, you know, constructing a robot out of different, you know, okay, I want them to have this character trait and that background. And this, and this. it was really just like they were fully realized people when they came to me and I just needed to communicate them.
0: So did they come out of you or did they come from some mysterious source in the universe? That is a
1: fantastic question. Um, it's funny, it's reminding me, I, I really love this podcast called On Being with Krista Tippett out of Minneapolis. And she talks a lot about math and whether math is is discovered or invented. And it's sort of reminding me of that as well. Like, you know, these characters, were did I invent them or did I discover them? And I don't know, you know, they've shifted and they've changed it over those you know the years that I've been working on this project, and so it's not like they've been fixed in stone in any way. But I do, um, I do feel like I stumbled upon them in this way that does feel a little bit like discovery, like they were sort of out there. But I also, when I read when I read over them, and I you know when I reread my work, I see a lot of different parts of myself and my story and places I've been and people I've met in them. So very much a product of my life in a way that I don't know, you know, I feel like whatever anyone writes, probably no one else could write it just like they did. And that's definitely true for, you know, my favorite authors. And I'm, I'm guessing, you know, we put ourselves into our work, of course.
0: And they came to you at a time of need. Yeah,
1: I definitely needed them. And they, you know, they really they did keep me company. You know, they fulfilled the desire that I had for them. They definitely fulfilled. They caused me more trouble later on when I went back and read the first draft and realized like I had a lot of uh, work to do on what I had first laid out. But at first they were just companions.
0: How did they create more work or what was that issue about?
1: Well, so I wrote characters who are not all sharing identities that I have. And so they're coming from different backgrounds and different social locations. And while I did that intentionally, what what it also did was it meant that I laid out sort of all of my own implicit racism and preconceived notions and bias. I just wrote it all out on the page to see, and um, that's a really vulnerable thing to do, and a lot of people really shy away from looking at themselves in that way, and I think I had too up until that point. I mean, I I had looked at myself in that way, but it's different to really write it out and then put it away for a while and come back to it and really see sort of like a mirror reflecting some things that I didn't really want to see about myself and so I had to really work with the characters and unpack them and figure out why I had written them the way I had and if there were changes I could make to make them more um real, but also did I even have the right to be writing these characters? Did they belong to someone else? Um, were the, these weren't my stories to tell? All those questions started coming up as I revisited the draft.
0: Well, now I hear you talking about taking ownership for creating them. So earlier you were talking about there was there's this kind of um, mystery of where they came from, whether you created them or they showed up. So I'm wondering where this bias I mean, you're you're clearly um, taking issue with the bias and using it as a mirror to reflect upon yourself. But I'm just wondering, how are you reconciling whether, you know, the content of the story coming from them or from yourself in terms of those biases?
1: I mean, I haven't fully reconciled it, I don't think. I think it's an ongoing process and project that's somewhat lifelong. Um, I will say, I mean, I think the bias and is completely mine. And as sort of a privileged white American, there are some, you know, growing up in a racist society, there are ways that I've been socialized to think about cultural Language, identity, immigration, a lot of these issues that I'm writing about, um, you know, it, even if I came from a progressive community, which I did, or have radical parents, which I do, it doesn't change the fact that I have been influenced by the society that I was raised in. And therefore, uh, there are implicit biases and uh Stereotypes and things that I think we all carry and are harmed by, um, but oftentimes they're under the surface, and so we don't engage with them, and that was the complication that came for me. In terms of where the characters come from, I, I don't think I've reconciled... I don't know that I'll ever really full, fully feel... Uh, sure that these were my stories to tell. Um, I did feel like I had to write them down at the time that I wrote them. And I felt like it was a worthy endeavor to see the project through, if only for self-reflection and introspection. But now that I've decided to share it with some people, I'm hoping it can sort of be an opening to a conversation about social justice writing and what it means to write about people who don't share all aspects of your identity and what that, how that conflicts with the idea of fiction. You know, you're creating, you know, sometimes a world, sometimes a town, sometimes special powers, um, but, you know, you are sort of f- creating things that aren't quote-unquote real, but at the same time, there are some, I think, some very clear lines of what is okay and what's not, and then sometimes those lines are blurred.
0: So where did your interest and passion arise from about racial and cultural issues? And what was your exposure early on in your life?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I've been really active and passionate about racial justice and social justice in general for many, many years. Um, I grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts in the Western part of the state, which is, um, a fairly white place but also a college town and so there's some interesting cultural and organizing events that happen there as a result of the universities and colleges surrounding and uh, my family is Jewish I'm an only child I'm close with my parents and they definitely instilled in me a lot of ideas of you know, justice and right livelihood and being conscientious. But I wouldn't say that I was aware of race and racism as a young kid in elementary school. When I was uh, my first year of high school, my family lived in India for a year. And that experience, I think, was really pivotal because I was seeing Poverty and understanding the caste system of India in a way that was really in my face. And I really started to reflect. So I was about 14 then. I really started to reflect on, you know, well was this happening back home? And did I not see it? And was it somehow hidden, but it was there? And how did I not see it? So when we came back, I started 10th grade, back in Amherst at Amherst High and I was really committed to like kind of uncovering this mystery. Okay, like, well, where where is this happening here? How does this manifest here? And why haven't I seen it? And why has it been hidden? And those questions really, really tormented me. And I was really lucky to get to take this class my sophomore year of high school called Theater of the Oppressed with a wonderful graduate student at the UMass um, Social Justice and Education Program. Her name was Jo Kent Katz. And that class completely... Completely shifted the trajectory of my life and opened my eyes. I read um, Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack by Peggy McIntosh, which is a really seminal article about white privilege. And I really started thinking about whiteness and white privilege. And I was also one of only three white students in a class that was everyone else was people of color. And I got to hear stories from my classmates about what it was like to be students of color in the school system that I had gone through. And it was mind-boggling to me, not only to hear their stories, but just that I hadn't known them up until then and how had it
0: taken that long. Uh,
1: So that really set me on this path that I feel like I've been on ever since.
0: So how prevalent is racism and this schism between cultures in our in our nation and and the sense of otherness and and resistance to otherness
1: um it's a great question i mean i want to just first acknowledge that i am white and so anything that i say about racism is not coming you know in terms i mean it's coming from a place of you know I devote a lot of my life and my work to this, but I will never know what it's like to be a person of color in this country, and it's really important to acknowledge that and that I can't speak for people of color and I can't speak to know their experience. Um, I don't think it's up for debate whether racism is prevalent in our society. It absolutely is. Racism is rampant and horrific, and we don't have to you know, move an inch to see it or hear it, um, turn on any radio program, tv news whatever look at the presidential election it's everywhere it's in schools it's in prisons it's in hospitals it is you know the problem that has haunted us since the beginning of colonialism and imperialism and continues today and so i you know i think i think some people are positioned in society in a way that they don't have to reckon necessarily with racial injustice um and i'm specifically talking about privileged white people who don't you know, who benefit from sort of white blindness and thinking that they are the norm and everyone around them is different or weird. But I would say just because people aren't necessarily aware of it doesn't mean it's not there and that it is very, very present and relevant and real and scary for many, many people.
0: And there's a lot of subtle layers and levels to it as well that perhaps many people are not even aware of.
1: Absolutely. And it's good that there's coming to be more awareness and conversation around microaggressions and that's a term that's being increasingly used on college campuses and that's sort of making its way into mainstream discourse in terms of the subtle ways that white people, you know, sort of offend and you know it's microaggressions but I really find it to be you know once you start looking at these examples and even witnessing it once you sort of open your eyes to it they are aggressive you know they're small slights that could be you know totally passed up except that they happen over and over again in a day and a lot of white people don't even realize that they're doing it
0: can you give some examples
1: Sure, you know, person of color is walking behind a white person on the street and the white person clutches their bag tighter to them, or white person's in the elevator and a black person's walking towards the elevator and they hit door closed before the person gets to the elevator. Now, whether or not it's happening on a conscious level or an unconscious level, maybe the person's just in a rush and they need to get up faster, who knows? But that the person of color has to experience this day in and day out, this feeling of Being a criminal, being dangerous. And this is a particular trope with black and Latino people, with the history in this country, that's sort of a dynamic. But, you know, I, again, I am, this comes from, you know, talking to people and reading and studying, but it doesn't come from my own personal experience. And so I I hesitate to really go into it more than that. But I think that microaggressions are a way, a language of talking about some of the subtleties of racism and sort of starting a dialogue about that. While we're also in the news getting some really overt examples of racist violence, um, particularly in relation to the police. So, you know, there's both. There's the slight everyday things that compound and build up and, you know, are completely draining and exhausting. And then there's, you know, there's the really very real threat of violence.
0: Mm. And it's been, it's actually been going on for a very long time. Absolutely. The spotlight is being made mainstream now. Correct. Absolutely. And it's being acknowledged more. There's not much justice occurring in this. No, there's not. This. I mean, we're still seeing pretty much all police officers getting off without any charges, without any Absolutely. any accountability. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm wondering, as someone who cares about these things and thinks about these issues, how, as a society, do you think we need to approach this issue?
1: Um... I mean that's a huge a huge question, and I don't know that I am in any way positioned to to answer it. I think the the thing that comes to my mind um, that I've been thinking about a lot is the idea of roles and like what roles need to be filled to make a movement of justice, of black lives matter, of you know nonviolent revolution. Uh, what what? What roles do we need and I really think we sort of need everyone and it's really a matter of figuring out what where one can best serve and contribute and be a participant Uh, I think you know yes we need lawyers we need journalists we need social workers uh, but we also need artists and we also need poets and we need community organizers and um, I think when I think about where we need to go, I think we really need to give voice to all the different ways that people participate in movements for social justice. You know, not everyone can show up to a protest with a sign. Some people can, but there are other ways to protest and there are other ways to fight for justice too. And we need them all.
0: I'm really curious, where does this protest go and what, what effect does it have on the world and 'Cause I'm thinking about the people who are perpetrating this kind of racial violence mm-hmm. and and some of the people are deeply entrenched in it and feel very deeply motivated and it's their it's their truth somehow. And mm-hmm. wondering how do we come together with people like that? Because I see the society as something we have to we have to move through this and grow together that we're not really gonna accomplish much if we're a fractured society. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how do we bridge those gaps with people like that? How do we communicate with people like that? Especially when there's so much anger and rage and, out, and outrage about these mm-hmm. kind of things. And so there's this tension of divisiveness, increased divisiveness and rage against different factions. And yet there's also this understanding that we have to work this out together how do we, how do we approach that?
1: Um, Well, what came to mind when you were asking your question was a lot about storytelling. And I think that was my motivation in continuing this project. And it also, you know, that was the big pivotal moment that shifted for me in that class Theater of the Oppressed, um, which was, you know, we used the work of Augusto Boal to um, sort of work on social justice issues in a theater context. And, in that class what what really moved me were the stories that i heard from my classmates of what had been going on right before my eyes my whole growing up and i hadn't seen it and you know yes there's so much anger and rage and you know people talk about compassion and listening compassionately which gets watered down. It, it, You know, I think the word compassion is important, but it's also, it can be weak in the face of what people are having to endure. And I think what stories do is they, they humanize the issues in a way. It really, you know, it's a careful line in terms of fetishizing or exotifying, you know, people's cultures and and their histories, but if stories come from a place of real integrity and honesty, I think that they're a really powerful way to communicate how laws and policies and, you know, rampant systemic racial violence and other forms of violence, gendered violence, violence against queer and trans people, all these ways that, you know, we can talk about on an abstract level in the news as much as we want, but when we hear a story and someone says, this was my life experience, it's a lot harder to argue with that than it is to argue with a theory or an idea or a statement. So I really see stories and storytelling, you know, and that's the birth of the hip hop movement, you know, hip hop and rap music over time, spoken word poetry. There are these ways that art and storytelling have been completely enmeshed with protest for a very long time and I think I see a lot of hope and promise in that marriage Mm.
0: and where does fiction come into this creative writing
1: I think what I have come to see just from this experience of doing a fictional project is this year's just so much power in fiction writing because you're really crafting a world for your reader. And that's a huge responsibility. Uh, but what it does is it just opens the boundaries a little bit to think, um, to think in a different way and also to communicate what you're thinking in a different way. So there's a subtlety that comes with fiction because you're not, in nonfiction, you can just say the truth, right? And in fiction, it's a little bit cloaked. And that cloaking is interesting because you can play with it and you can, um, you can be really intentional or you can be really unintentional about the choices you make. And, you know, in the thinking about narrative choice, okay, well, what message am I sending by having her leave the room at that moment? Right. All of these subtle messages going back to microaggressions, you know, it's like, these little moments are what make up our days. And so in fiction, you're really choosing, well, what slice of these people's lives am I going to share with my reader? And I would argue that deciding on that slice is a very political decision. And so I think fiction has a huge place in the movement for social justice. But I, you know, I think it's a big responsibility too. And I I think we have, as writers, we have the responsibility to really think about the implications of what we're saying because I I think we are changed by what we read. We're changed, you know, we all have the favorite things we read as kids. We have our favorite authors. I would say those people changed us just like the people we met in Real Flesh and Blood changed us. And so if, if someone's choosing to be one of those people for others by writing their work down and sharing it, well, then they need to really think about what they're sharing, I think.
0: So what have you learned about yourself through your writing from seeing this evolution of these stories and whatever emerges on the page?
1: I mean, I think what I just keep coming back to is is this sort of humility of just that it's okay not to know and that it's okay, you know, I can only know my experience as we all can only know our own experience and we can try and, you know, grasp with what other people live through, but, you know, we can only be in this one body in this moment. And so I think I've, I've learned to just ease into the discomfort of knowing that I might say something offensive or I might make a mistake or I might, you know, suggest something really problematic. And I do it all the time and people call me out on it. And that's great. Like, that's how I keep learning. Um, And I think, you know, this whole idea that we have in academia and in writing of being an expert or of mastering your discipline or your craft, that's kind of baloney, you know, because, you know, how can one master, you know, these things that we're talking about there, if there were easy answers, we would have figured them out by now.
0: How can we really deeply understand or master anything other than just? ourself and our own experience
1: right and many times during this project I thought gosh it would be so much easier to just write my own story you know and write about about myself and certainly aspects of myself and my story came through but I, I had done a lot of non-fiction writing and I was curious okay well what does this look like you know to challenge myself in this way and you know I think that you know, it's not easy to write about oneself and autobiography is really challenging in a lot of other ways. Uh, and there's a lot of vulnerability that comes with that, that in fiction, there's sort of a little bit of a, a curtain you can hide behind. Um, but yeah, the, the idea of really being humble, you know, I just, I recently moved to a predominantly black Caribbean neighborhood in Brooklyn and have been, you know, really, really wrestling with issues of gentrification and knowing that I should not be living there and that I am causing a lot of problems for people who've lived in this neighborhood for decades. But it also, you know, I have a character in the novel who is of Caribbean descent and you know i had basically finished this draft when i moved to brooklyn and arriving there i just realized how little i know about caribbean culture and you know it just reiterated for me what right did i have to tell this man thomas's story you know thomas is one of my characters and you know i think that ongoing self-interrogation, you know, but with kindness, with gentleness, you know, I can easily start beating myself up and that isn't really productive either, right? But, you know, acknowledging like, wow, I, this is not where I come from and that's okay. Like, I don't need to pretend that I grew up here or that I grew up in this culture. I didn't, you know? I can be honest and show up as my true authentic self, but also, you know, show that I really, that I want to not even know, I just want to become acquainted with where other people are coming from and that that's what storytelling allows us to do is sort of enter into other people's realities just for a moment and get a taste. Uh, but I don't believe we can ever
0: truly, you know, know
1: what that other existence
0: is like. There's this concept of interconnection and interdependence that's that's mm-hmm. becoming much more widely talked about. And it's a double-edged sword in some ways. It's a very beautiful thing when we come to realize that with each other. But we're continually having effects on, on people that are potentially negative as well. You talked about how you felt that there was something destructive about you moving into this community in Brooklyn and the issue of gentrification. Um, is there a balance I'm hearing a bit more guilt in there
1: I don't think it's guilt and I mean I don't want to go into this too much because that would be a whole other conversation about politics of gentrification and you know it's specific to every city and New York's going through a very specific thing right now. Um, what I will say is that I do think that corporate luxury real estate developers use young lower earning white recent graduates like myself as a transition point to start shifting the neighborhood in the direction of being able to ultimately take over the homes and build luxury condos. So I'm very aware of that dynamic and of my role in a system that's much, much bigger than me and my individual renting of this room that I'm renting. But I guess that I'm thinking about it in a larger systemic way and how am I implicated? um, How is my presence here? participating in this process that is ultimately pushing people out of their homes. So that's sort of all I want to say about that right now. But I do think that being a gentrifier is, it's not about guilt, but it is about self-reflection and i think being really awareness of place and space what land am i standing on you know who who first lived on this land then who colonized this land then who was pushed onto this land because they weren't wanted elsewhere right so where does land have value where you know what gives land value or not is a very very political question and very connected to our country's racial history
0: but don't we want to be able to live together and share everything together and be able to come together as a community
1: we absolutely do but we also want to let people be able to do that at home right in their own cultural home and so what what happens to a community to a neighborhood that is a vibrant vibrant cultural expression of people from different countries who have you know come to live together in a certain city in the United States, or people who have lived here for generations who feel marginalized from mainstream society for whatever reason. So when white upper class people start joining them, what really happens is it corrodes the ability for those neighborhoods and that vibrancy to continue thriving the way it has. Yes, of course we want to all be able to live together, but if you look historically at what has happened to neighborhoods through gentrification, it's a complete wiping out of what has been there, right? It's not, it's not a mixing the way we want to glorify it to be. And that's just the sad truth of what has been happening over decades. So of course, you know, we, we want to be able to cohabitate, but also like at whose expense and for whose benefit? Those are the questions I would add to it.
0: And who may be sitting behind the scenes waiting to take advantage of...
1: Exactly, this. right. There are, there's a lot of money at stake in all this, a lot, a lot of money.
0: So this might be a really good time to delve into the topic of identity and belonging, mm-hmm. because that, that's another thing that you're very interested in, and that we're touching on that right now with, with this issue of communities where people of particular identities can feel like they really belong.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. uh, You know, I think that this whole project is really sort of about identity and, you know, for myself, how do I identify and how does that limit or expand my options as a writer and as an artist. But I think also, you know, I thought a lot about where are my characters coming from? What are their social identities and social locations? And how does that impact their ability both to move through the world and also to feel at home and to feel a sense of belonging in the world?
0: Mm. Having a safe home base. To retreat to, if when right,
1: and what what does home look like? You know, home is something different for everyone, and you know, lots of people talk and write about home. And you know, there's cliche sayings about home not being house, but home is, you know, your family or your feeling of being in nature. You know, it's something different for everyone, but I think that. Home is a very political thing too. You know, people, you know, have moved all around the world over hundreds of years. And so what does connection to land look like? What is colonialism's role in the question and conversation about home? I think there are a lot of directions to go in when talking about home and belonging that are really exciting and interesting to me and that I think are really important. Such as? um Well, for example, you know, I think I, I, you know, I'm very influenced by the work of bell hooks. And she, you know, wrote this article about cultural appropriation and called eating the other and this sort of commodification of people of color, especially by young white people who want to sort of prove that they are not being racist and that they are not part of this horrible system that puts some people above others. And that they do that by, you know, this sort of elaborate show and sort of, of taking on traits and consuming cultural products like music and dance and really sort of trying to enter into this world of people of color in an effort to show like, look, I'm a good white person. I'm not racist, right? But what happens in that process? And then, you know, I think about home in the context of that, right? So what what is happening for white people who are trying to distance themselves from where they came from, from their own roots, right? Because they don't want to be associated with what whiteness means in this country and what the history of whiteness is here, so they're turning their back on that to try and envelop themselves in a world they didn't grow up in in an effort to, it's different for everyone, everyone has their own intentions, but it's sort of this, this message that they can send of being good, not but one of those bad ones, right? And then look at the other side, what, okay, well, where is home and place? If home and place is being invaded by people who who didn't want us, you know, and I say us, but I'm not actually part of that group membership. So so for people of color, you know, there's been an experience of being rejected and pushed to the sidelines and the margins of culture. And then these incredibly brilliant, beautiful art forms and traditions and rituals come out of that space of being marginalized. And now all of a sudden all these white people want to come and take over it and take credit for it and make money off of it. So what what is that process and where is home and belonging in that. That's a question I'm really interested in grappling with.
0: That's such a fascinating issue. How are you grappling with that? And what, what ideas, what?
1: I mean, I can only really, I'm, I can only be responsible for myself. So I, I mean, in the, for example, in this project and writing this, I really wrote a lot in, in my own sort of journaling and processing about, okay, well, am I doing that? Like by, by writing, characters who are people of color, who are immigrants, whose first languages are not English. What am I trying to distance myself from whiteness? Am I trying to prove to the world that I am a good white person and that I am not one of those bad ones and like look at me I made a racially diverse cast in my novel right? So I think all those questions come up and you know that's how I grapple with it is I ask myself those questions and I make it okay for myself to say yes if that's what I need to say you know it's about being honest to oneself. If we can't do that then how are we going to be honest to others? people but I think writing is a really great way to you know like that mirror that we talked about earlier to really reflect back on okay well what is inside me what don't I really like you know we look in our mirror reflection all the time and see things we don't like about our physical image but we don't always do that as much with our inner world and I think that that's one of the great gifts of writing is it allows us to do that
0: one thing I've noticed is that people who tend to be a a little less secure in their own person and their own identity tend to reflect more on themselves. And it tends mm-hmm. to be a little more, maybe, self destructive initially because there's this tendency to pick at oneself and to degrade oneself. Mm-hmm. But I look at a lot of people who are very secure in the world who don't reflect at all, mm-hmm. they're very insulated in a sense. Yeah, And you bring up issues of mental health. How does that play into this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad you brought up mental health and because what I was thinking when you were first asking that question was about the this idea of intersectionality, which more people are talking about now. Um, but, you know, we're talking a lot about race and culture and language, but that's not the only thing at play, right? So there's gender, there's sexuality, there's class, there's a physical and mental ability. There's all these things at play. And, you know, I think it's very easy for me to go into a mode of being really self-critical and self-destructive and I think that that intersects with my identity of being a woman and being raised female and... You know, I definitely understand gender to be a continuum and not a binary, but I was, I do identify as female and I, that's how I was raised. And there are certain implications that being female intersects with being white and also being Jewish and also from a middle class background and from a rural town, right? So all of these things start intersecting. You can't look at one without looking at all of them. And I think they all build up to make me in a position to absolutely be a little bit self-destructive and self-critical and be more likely to say, oh, it's my fault. I'm bad than to defend myself and say, no, 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 I'm good. And I think that a lot of the people, if you look closely, a lot of the people who you're describing who have this sense of security walking through the world and might not be self-reflecting as much, okay, well, where, where did they grow up? You know, what is their background? What is their gender? What is their sexuality, right? So when you start to unpack these things, there's a little bit of a pattern that starts to develop. And I think that being aware of that and all those different factors at play are, you know, like, can I talk about gender oppression and gendered violence and my experience with those things while also acknowledging that I benefit from white privilege, right? Can both be true side by side, that I'm not completely oppressed, but I'm also not completely, you know, scathe-free because none of us are. Life is traumatic for everyone, no matter who they are. But you know, when we talk about mental health and trauma, okay, well, what is the trauma of, you know, a horrific car accident? That's obviously a traumatic event. What is the trauma for that person who is walking on the street and sees a white person clutch their bag tighter? Because, and you know, they don't know, is it because I'm a person of color? Is it not? Who knows? But, you know, what is the trauma enacted in that moment? And and then how does that build on all the other billions of moments that happen throughout the day?
0: Mm. In your story, you have a number of characters that are struggling to to assert, to, to be who they want to be and to pursue what they're wanting to pursue. And there are a lot of constraints in, in the story for all of them in, mm-hmm. in order to be doing that. Um, there's this young girl whose parents are insisting that she act and be in a certain way and she hates that and she's rebelling against it. We see a lot of that. Mm-hmm. It's part of, part of growing up. It seems to be part of the individuation process for everybody. Some parents are much more supportive of what their children want, and some are very controlling. Mm-hmm. How does that fit into, into this? To me, that is a traumatic thing to deal with when you grow up and you're not allowed to be who you are.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I was actually very recently having an amazing conversation about that feels very relevant to this with a wonderful educator in New York City named Mario Bonave. And we were talking about this idea of code switching, which is a big thing in education, right? This idea that, um, you know, students might, you know, speak in different ways, hold their bodies in different ways, dress in different ways, depending on what space they're in. And it's often a very coded conversation about, you know, what it's really addressing is students of color who come to school and are asked to speak in a way that they don't speak at home, to dress in a way that doesn't reflect how they feel about themselves or how they want to carry themselves in the world, right? And so Mario and I were talking about code switching and about code switching as a violence, as violence being a time when someone is asked to be someone who they're not. To leave where they come from behind, to leave the people they love behind by not allowing them to be their whole selves, and I think that gets right at what you're asking. And I think that sometimes parents enact that violence on their children, absolutely, intentionally or unintentionally. It you know, it happens. Parents have an idea of how they want their kids to be, and that you know they're not actually all controlling the way they might wish they were. Uh, I think it was also also an interesting. Exploration for me just because I did have incredibly supportive parents. I did feel very supported and I did feel very encouraged to be who I was both by my parents and also by my teachers in school. And so why is that? Why were my teachers supporting me being who I am. what? How does that intersect with my my race and my class background, right? But I think that I was interested in exploring in, in sort of fiction being a place to explore the unknown. Okay, well, what would it be like to have grown up with parents who were forcing me to do activities I didn't want to do or who wanted me to think a way that didn't feel natural to me? Uh, so working on these characters and having a couple characters who dealt with that with their own families was sort of a way of me trying that on, you know, trying that hat on and seeing how it fits in a way of, okay, well, what what would that be like? And how would that have weighed on me in a way that it didn't weigh on me? You know, we talk a lot about privilege in very specific, you know, settings about race and gender and, you know, some of these other issues. But, well, what about the privilege of having parents who support you, you know, coming out as gay or being an artist and not making a lot of money? You know, all these ways that, you know, having that support is really critical and not having that support can be very detrimental and so you know what is the privilege of having parents who stay married versus getting divorced right what is the privilege of you know having both parents still alive by the time you graduate high school what 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 are what is at play in family dynamics and in family stories
0: is really interesting to me and one thing that's that's also very interesting is all those things have um, dual effects. They can have positive and kind of stultifying effects, in that people can become very comfortable mm-hmm. in very secure situations. Absolutely. And it can actually inhibit or provide a lack of stimulus to grow
1: absolutely. And I think we all can probably picture examples of that, you know, people we know in in both of those camps, and some, you know, straddle both lines. Yeah, I mean, with discomfort comes great. Opportunity, right? A lot of.
0: Crisis equals opportunity.
1: Yeah. And a mm-hmm. lot of when you think about the great artists and musicians and actors, you know, like so much suffering is there when, you know, when their great masterpieces burst. Well, often everything wasn't just going hunky dory right before, right? So, yeah, I mean, we wouldn't wish this suffering on anyone. And yet, are very defined by it, and you know, not defined in a way that you know I am what happened to me, but defined in that in that moment of opportunity of okay, well, what am I going to do with this? What am I going to create with this? Um, and that was you know for me what this writing project was was you know like what what am I going to do with this circumstances I have found myself in right? And for me it was I'm going to create this world and see what happens in it and see if it you know, ushers me into a different place in my life, which it did.
0: And I'm really curious how it did and how authentic it felt and how much of a sense of immersion into the experience of the other that it gave you.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, one thing about this entering the experience of the other, again, I'm thinking a lot about bell hooks and this, you know, like, okay, well, what is sort of exoticizing other cultures and what is celebrating them and, and being inspired by them. And I think that's a really important line. to And really also
0: what is truly empathizing with it.
1: Right. And can we, you know, empathy versus sympathy, you know, like can versus compassion, can we really empathize with something we haven't lived through? Um, in terms of authenticity, you know, I don't think I can really say whether it's, you know, I think it's up to a reader and, you know, I think it's up to other people to say whether or not it feels authentic or not. I think to me what I can speak to is that, you know, the characters feel like real people to me and they feel alive and present and very important to me. That said, do I think that I authentically rendered and represented their
0: stories? Probably not. You know, I don't really know. What I was really meaning is how did it feel for you? Were you... Did you feel like you could really connect with them and grow and learn something from the experience.
1: Absolutely. I absolutely did. And I definitely felt like I learned a lot from my characters, you know, like in the process of getting to know them by writing them out, I really you know, I want to know how Sarah's going to connect to Mrs. Schnitzer, how Nina's going to connect to Maria Saabel, but I also want to know, okay, how am I going to connect to Nina? How am I going to connect to Sarah? Like, what is my, where do I enter into this? And maybe the reader won't experience that connection, but I'm there, and I don't think it's it's realistic to suggest that the writer can just completely divorce themselves from what they're writing, nor would I really want to.
0: And you talked about this as being an experiment. Um, life is an experiment. Mm-hmm. And there's kind of a blurring between fiction and real life in that sense, too.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, we're all living in our own little worlds and projecting those worlds onto each other and onto our surroundings. And it causes for a lot of mayhem and chaos because we don't all see eye to eye. But how boring would that be, right? If we did, you know, like, I mean, sure, it's great to agree. And it's great to find your tribe of people who think, you know, like-mindedly
0: hang out in your choir right Your safe choir
1: and that's very comfortable and it's necessary and it allows us to recharge and not burn out and feel at home you know we come back to home you know a lot of us find home in people who share our values and our politics and our ideals but you know also what's going to push us what's going to challenge us what you know where you know that moment of crisis where the art Bursts forth. Well, okay. Well, what are the conditions that are going to make that we can't contrive it? We can't, you know, try and make something bad happen so that something creative will emerge. But we don't have to try. Bad things are going to happen. It's life. That's just what's gonna what's going to be. And so, what are we going to do with that?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, life is a, a mixed bag in itself. It it it's self propelling in so many different ways, and the complexity of of interrelationships between different. Characters, different narratives. Because we're all we're all essentially walking narratives. Aren't Absolutely. We? Absolutely. And those narratives, those stories are continually changing and evolving based upon the conversations that we're having with the world around us, whether they're in words or just the direct interactions that we're having. And that's one of the reasons why I love fiction so much, because it, it just accelerates the whole process. Mm-hmm. And to me, as a writer, do you find fiction to be as powerful and, in a sense, as real as reality? And if so, how?
1: It's a great question. You know, I haven't really thought about that before. My first instinct is to say no. Um, And I think part of that, I'm a very visual person, a very visual learner. Um, It always helps for me to have a teacher write something on the board and say it versus just say it. So I think there's an element of reading that challenges that aspect of me because, sure, I'm coming up with images in my mind of what I'm reading, um, but it doesn't satisfy the the presence that I crave for, the tactile, the smells, all of that experience that, you know, when I'm in a new place, when I'm in a city, when I'm traveling, um, that experience of being completely bombarded with senses I find fiction tries to recreate that for me and it's a great recreation, but it's, it's not the real thing. And I'm sure people would disagree with me about that because I think everyone has a really different relationship to reading and literature. I've always actually really struggled with reading. Reading is hard for me. It doesn't feel always restful or relaxing. It feels like work. I do it and I love it, but um, I think, I don't know that it could ever quite measure up to my experience of just walking in the world.
0: Mm. So it's not quite as immersive for you.
1: Yeah, I think really because of the senses, because you mm-hmm. know we are getting some of our senses met, those needs met, but not not all of them in the same way that we do in real life. But I think it would be too much if it was all just you know real. You know, fiction is is a way for us to make sense of the overwhelming nature of the world by sort of containing it. In a, in a way that has a beginning, middle, and end. And, you know, I think about theater and live performance as a way of sort of merging the real world and, the you know, the flesh and blood and nature and the woods and the ocean and all of that with fiction and with writing and with reading, right? It's sort of the
0: marriage of the two. Mm. And there's a lot of fascinating uh, information coming through the world of neuroscience where... Mm-hmm. There's a lot more acknowledgement of the power of the imagination, that the experience that we have through our senses is really neurological, and we actually experience it not out there, but in there, right, which is very paradoxical.
1: Absolutely, and everything that's being learned now about neuroplasticity and the, the idea that we can actually change change our brains, and we can create new neural pathways, and you know shift the way we think. Well, going back to your question earlier about how are we going to do this and me saying that the importance is, you know, storytelling. Well, what does storytelling do? Maybe it creates a new neural pathway. Exactly. Maybe it actually changes yeah. someone's brain who, yeah. you know, grew up in a really racist family and that's all they knew. But then they start hearing these stories and, you know, or they have
0: experiences or they have experience. The
1: right. And, mm-hmm. and their normal is challenged. And, you know, in, in, you know my academic background and discipline is ethnic studies and in ethnic studies we talk a lot about unlearning right so versus learning so mm-hmm. what what is the work of unlearning and undoing racism and undoing colonialism and imperialism right so all of these things it's not always new information it's sometimes about creating space right? And that's, I think, a lot about new neural pathways as a way to sort of, okay, well, what can we, you know, push to the side a little bit so that we can allow for a new way of thinking about
0: something to emerge? So I love that you use that term unlearning. Yeah. Because as we're growing up, we learn so much at a very unconscious level. We're not choosing Mm -hmm. to accept these things and we're not questioning them. We're not investigating them.
1: Right.
0: And it seems like a big part of life is this unlearning process. And then you mentioned creating space. Mm-hmm. Is that what unlearning does, is it create space?
1: It's one of those things. I mean, what I'm thinking as you're speaking is just, I think of Goddard College being an institution of unlearning in a lot of ways, that we are given the space here to really question what we have learned in mainstream traditional education and and to give us space to learn New ways, if we so choose, and to walk away if we so choose, right? So there's a freedom that comes with unlearning and a responsibility. Okay, I have the power here to decide what to read, right? I have the power to design my own syllabus and my own curriculum and really shape my own learning. Well, what a huge responsibility, right? Because that means I can't blame my professor for forcing me to read all these books and making me think. That means I'm responsible for how I think. Well, that's terrifying, right? But it's also so exciting and such an opportunity. And then you look back at traditional education models and you think, wow, okay, So what's going on there, you know, what is unlearning looking like in a traditional classroom? And it's not that it's not happening there. It just looks different. And so uh, I think there's great merit in experiencing learning and education in different models and modes because, you know, it allows us to really interrogate what we know, why we know it, why we believe it, who said it first. Why did they say it? What were their interests? Was there money behind it? Was there power behind it? So I think all those things are really connected with unlearning. And I think creating space absolutely is part of it. But then I think filling that space becomes the question. Mm -hmm. How are we going to fill that new space that has been created? if there's a void, what is going to enter into that void?
0: And how do we work with that? Now we're talking about the creative process, aren't we? Yeah. How do we work with that? You're a writer. Creativity is one of the things that fascinates me the most because that's entering into the realm of possibility, Mm -hmm. infinite possibility, if we Mm -hmm. can conceive of that. Yeah. Including changing the world around us.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Absolutely. And making it the way we want it to be. I mean, we, we have that option if we can conceive of it. Yeah. For many people, it's so difficult to even conceive of being able to create what we really want.
1: It's reminding me, um, John Lewis, who's a great, great civil rights activist and has done amazing work his whole life. He talks about, you know, he's he's older now, but he when he reflects on the civil rights movement and he was, you know, in the, in the march from Selma to Montgomery, he was part of the Bloody Sunday. You know, there was a lot of violence there that happened and, and he talks about how he really did this exercise of, Imagining that what they were fighting for had already occurred, that they had already won, right? So, Martin Luther King Jr. talked about the beloved community, right? So, we John Lewis imagined that the beloved community was already there, that they had their revolution, that the movement had won, and then that's how he acted in his activism and in his nonviolence, right? Mm. So, and I love that. I love that too, and yeah. I think that. When we think about creativity, well, let's get creative about how we think, right? That's Mm -hmm. a creative process too. People talk about our lives being a work of art, right? That we're creative in how we decide to spend our time. We're
0: all walking masterpieces.
1: Exactly, right? But I love this idea that we could sort of almost superimpose the world we want on the world we have and then live as if. Mm -hmm. And then what does that look like? And then how does that actually create what we want?
0: Mm. Yeah. Speaking of all that, I'm speaking with Lena Sklove here on the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Time is just flying by. It is. And I'm really loving this conversation. <laughs> Me too. Me too. So where do we go from here? I, I just, you know, I love that, that. One thing that I've been playing with for the last 10 years is not only imagining what I want, but actually feeling feeling what it feels like to experiencing what I really want, the Mm -hmm. feeling of it. Mm -hmm. That's another really powerful element in that process, I think.
1: Yeah, and in this writing project, you know, I think longing is a big theme that comes up, and so that... What do I want? You know, I think all of these characters, you know, early on learning about fiction, you you know, you're told, okay, well, what do your characters want and what do they need, right? Those are big questions you need to be able to answer. Um, but this is even more than want. You know, I think longing is an interesting word. Desire is an interesting word. I think that I was really interested to see when I was tempted to give the characters what they wanted and when I was tempted to withhold from them and I think that those decisions were political also and I also think that um those were moments in which I definitely was present with them right because that that was another moment of power and responsibility okay well this character wants to go home and what home means to him is returning to the country where he was born which is not the country in which he grew up okay well does he go home And what does it mean if he does go back home? And what does it mean if he doesn't? And what are the implications of that for the reader and for the world?
0: Uh, Yeah. And what does that feel like? It's terrifying.
1: (laughs) Um, You know, because I think power is scary to me. And other people's power is scary and my own power is scary. And I think that's something I'm still grappling with. And I think that writing is a, sort of a safe place for me to have that conversation with myself.
0: Because ha- you can't actually hurt anybody.
1: Oh, but you can. I think you
0: can. Well, who? unless somebody reads it. Who- uh,
1: okay, so yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming that, you know, if if I died and someone found my manuscript, you know, I'm, I'm assuming that paper or electronic files will at some point be seen. Sure. If it's only for myself in my lock journal where I throw the key into the Atlantic, then maybe, maybe, but you know, I don't know. I really, I do believe in energy and I believe that the intentions we put out into the world do matter. And so while maybe it doesn't hurt anyone, you know, to write something hateful, for example, Mm. to write hateful language and hateful Mm -hmm. speech. Okay, well, maybe if it's not said out loud, is it still hateful? Absolutely. If no one ever reads it, you know, but that person had that hate within them enough to write it down and then they move through the world from that place of hate, well, that's very hurtful.
0: It has repercussions.
1: Exactly, yes.
0: But are they all negative. Because we all have to grow. We have to learn from things. Absolutely. What about the notion that people that not only diversity of culture and diversity of race and diversity of experience, but also diversity of the kind of lessons that we can learn in life. Absolutely. That that there's light and there's dark. and, And to just put all negative experience and things like hate and anger on the side of, of what's bad and wrong. How responsible is that?
1: Right. I Well, it's a great moment. I really wanted to mention two people who have been really influential in this project. One is my Goddard faculty advisor, um, Micah Garland, who is just wouldn't have gotten this far without her. And she was very much with me every step of the way. And the other is my second reader, Arisa White, who's in the BFA program here at Goddard. And Arisa said something to me last residency back in March that really stuck with me. We were sitting in the cafeteria and I was talking about some of my anxiety about the project. This was before she had read my manuscript. And Arisa said to me, you know, we talk a lot about race because it's really triggering for us. Right. And it's really prevalent and relevant right now. But there are so many other ways that you, Lena, do not share identity with your characters beyond that. Right. And then, you know, we started thinking about it and I have a character who's 10 years old. I'm not 10 anymore. I'm in my 20s.
0: But you were 10.
1: I was 10. I was. But that was a different moment in my life and from mm-hmm. you know can i really get into the mindset of a 10 year old well that's an interesting question english was not my first language i was born on united states soil you know what are all the ways that you know you know i don't have siblings i don't know what it's like to live with siblings for example my parents stayed married i was not adopted you know there are just so many nuances and complexities to who we are beyond these, you know, very important things to talk about, such as race and gender and class and sexuality. But there are also other nuanced ways for us to think about ourselves and each other. And and yeah, I mean, I think a lot about spirituality and activism and what that looks like. And I think what you're talking about in terms of the negativity and all the bad stuff, you know, is relevant to the question of, you know, activism from a spiritual place, or what does that even look like? And the great Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, talks a lot about planting seeds. And my mom taught me about the teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh when I was very young. And, you know, he talks about, well, what seeds do you plant and what seeds do you water? And what you water will grow. And it's very simple, but it's, I think it's very profound. And I think that, you know, we we don't want to just be fighting against, we want to be fighting for. And I think that's something we're all in the process of trying to articulate is, okay, we know what we don't want, but what do we want? And that connects to to, the philosophy of John Lewis, okay, well, if we're going to project what we want onto our reality and make it so... Well then we better be really sure that we really want what we're projecting. And I don't know that, you know, I think some people really know what it looks like. I don't think I know. I think that it's really hard to, you know, truly, truly imagine things being different. You know, what what would it look like if prisons were abolished? It's 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 difficult to really think about what that would mean, right? What openings would that have? What complications would there be? You know, what if we didn't have a police presence? What if there were no police and we had just community accountability, right? How do we imagine these radical ideas and really shape them into what we want? I think that conversation is still happening right now.
0: And being able to imagine ourselves even deeper, like to the place of where there is no violence, where people do empathize with each other. And Absolutely, they come from a base of a deep sense of spiritual recognition of who they really are from the inside out and recognizing that in each other. Right. In and a way that that obviates things like police and laws and prisons, and then treats people as people who maybe need help. Mm, yeah. As opposed to punishment.
1: Right. And I think, you know, my dad has influenced me a lot. He writes and talks a lot about ego and ego transcendence. And um I think that ego is a really important conversation to have in the context of activism and social justice, because um, there's a lot of ego in that world, and it's 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 intense. And I think, you know, what does nonviolent revolution look like without leaders and superstars, right? Is it possible? and I think Occupy was playing with that question, Occupy Wall Street. But also, you know, what what power emerges in the context of a social movement? And what do individuals do with that power and how are other dynamics such as gender oppression and sexual orientation? How are those power dynamics also at play in the context of a movement itself? And what responsibility do we have to honor all the complexity that's going on, right? Is it all about just being a perfect all-star activist? No. <laughs> it can't be, right? Because we are not perfect robots walking around. We are human beings. We say the wrong things all the time. I say the wrong things all the time. I do the wrong thing all the time, right? But but I also show up, and I think that's what I have chosen to do, and that's what I all I can really ask of other people too is like just show up right because then we can try and make sense of all this
0: and we can decide which seeds we want to water
1: we can decide which seeds we want to water we can decide what role we want to play what where we can be of most service or of most you know where we can thrive in a way that's beneficial for
0: everyone and where we put our energy and attention absolutely i'm so glad you brought up the issue in terms of activism of resistance of pushing against what we don't want Mm-hmm. focusing on what we don't want, which in a sense when we're doing that, aren't we, aren't we feeding that? I mean, I think we need both. We have to know what, what the issues are, the problems are in order to understand what, what we want. The contrast serves to inform us about what we want. Mm. But how long do we stay fighting against what we don't want and when do we need to shift our focus and our energy and attention toward what what we really do want what is really most important to us I think what's most important to us is not fighting against what's wrong because that's just the first step perhaps
1: yeah I mean I think it's Like everything, it's sort of about balance. And I think about Yes Magazine. I feel really influenced by and grateful for Yes Magazine as an example of a way to acknowledge and bear witness to horrific things in the world, because there are, and to spotlight and make space to honor the amazing things that people are doing to continue to live their lives in justice and in peace and in you know where's joy in all this right where is gladness and delight and you know fun like where is fun right and and what is a movement without fun what is a movement without prayer what is a movement without farmers and gardening and vegetables and earth and so i think i mean i think yes magazine is sort of a model of Walking that line of, you know, we're not going to pretend everything's perfect. We're not going to pretend that violence is not raging all across the world and in terrible ways. But we're also not going to pretend that it's all bad, even though mainstream media would love us to think that the whole world is burning as we speak and everyone is evil. It's just not true, and I don't think it reflects people's personal experiences of community and of relationship building. And I think, you know, if we can start to, you know, really support independent media, support Amy Goodman and Democracy Now!, support Yes! Magazine, support The Sun, all these publications and media outlets that give voice to people who are not being heard on the megaphones of mainstream media, you know, support your local newspaper support your local radio station like when I think about little things we can do to really amplify all the good that's happening too and I don't say that to try and you know glorify or diminish any of the suffering that's going on it's just that I don't think that's the whole story
0: make use of that horizon of possibility
1: right right and you know we're all in different positions to be able to to do that in different ways
0: we all have different perspectives. We have different histories. Right, absolutely. And, and those
1: impact how we see the suffering as opportunity.
0: When I grew up, a lot of the stuff that I was reading were horror stories. A good example of it is the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. I have strong memories of reading Josie Kozinski. Who wrote, he was a Holocaust survivor, mm-hmm. and it deeply affected him. And he wrote stories of horrible things that people did to each other. But I think people can really grow out of that. Mm-hmm. It's like finding resilience through tragedy. Mm-hmm. That's a powerful um, notion, mm-hmm. how people do that. I've done a lot of interviews in the last year, and almost everybody references the work of Viktor Frankl.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Everybody is yeah, sourcing Yeah, I read him. this
1: as part of my
0: project. I yeah, read that. Everybody yeah. is sourcing him. That experience of living through horror as creating a base from which a really deep sense of understanding and compassion. And
1: making meaning. I mean, that's what he's, he's writing about, meaning. And where do we find meaning in our lives? And isn't that what we're here for? Isn't that our purpose, right? To find some sort of meaning in all of this.
0: Making sense of what may appear to be chaos and madness in the world.
1: And things that just are senseless, that we can never, you know, that's the thing about violence and trauma is there's not always a really clear way to make a rational explanation of things. Sometimes things just defy all attempts to be sensical. And yet, and where's the meaning in that, right? And can we still garner meaning? And how
0: do we distill meaning from a world that isn't rational, isn't linear in, in those ways. Absolutely. Doesn't make sense. It does yeah. not. <laughs> and how does meaning play into creative writing and fiction?
1: Hmm. I mean, fiction's fun in that we get to we get to hang out with what's meaningful to us, right? So nonfiction, if you're, you know, covering a story for a newspaper, say, you're a little bit dependent on you know, what happens at whatever you're covering, who ends up speaking, uh, who shows up, who doesn't, right? Um, With fiction, you can really choose, okay, what are the themes I'm, that feel really juicy to me right now, right? And like, where do I want to go deeper? Where do I want to hang out? And then you get to explore within that realm, you know, it's, it's sort of like, now there's all, you know, I don't, I don't really know anything about them but I know there are all these video games and you know computer games and things where you can sort of create this alternative reality and then really enter into them and people get super obsessed and and I feel like fiction is my video game in that sense of just this opportunity to step into another world it's also like sometimes just a relief to not be in reality reality is exhausting and I mean I've never really written sci fi or fantasy or anything like sort of magical in that way. But just writing people who are not actually walking around in the flesh is kind of thrilling in its own way.
0: Well you touch a little bit on magic in your novel. Hmm. There there are some kind of mysterious connections that occur.
1: Right. Well, I'm fascinated by coincidence and by chance. And, you know, I love the saying, what are the chances? I say it a lot because I I just, I think it's great to be surprised. I think it's great when things line up and people work out against all odds, right? You know, I was walking in New York City a few days ago, just on the Upper East Side doing an errand that I needed to do. And I was far from home. I don't live anywhere near there, but... I just happened upon a crowd and I'm trying to figure out what everyone's looking at. And it's President Obama driving by in his presidential procession, right? So what are the chances that I would just stumble upon Mr. Obama in his car, right? So, I mean, he was just driving by waving, but I think that... That's fun. And that's the way I find delight and I find joy in all this sort of misery. And yeah, I don't have, you know, I don't have people casting magical spells and doing potion concoctions. Uh, But yeah, you're totally right. And I'm grateful to you for bringing that up that there is sort of magic in the everyday and in coincidence and
0: serendipity. And anytime two people come together, in a sense, magic happens. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, you know, well, what does that look like in fiction? What does it mean to be sort of orchestrating that process of having two characters meet and you're sort of the third, but you're kind of the odd one out because you're not really there, but you get to sort of be the puppeteer
0: and you get to play the power role.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is really uncomfortable for me. You know, some people are really natural in that and, um, And that's something I really have shied away from for a long time. And, you know, I think, you know, when I think about leadership, like, well, what what does leadership look like? and What is healthy leadership versus corrupt leadership? And and how does that play out in in creative writing?
0: I experienced this in myself, too, in in terms of power, that I don't necessarily trust Mm
1: -hmm.
0: what might happen.
1: You mean you don't trust the outcome, yourself or just in general, you don't trust
0: the outcome? Yeah. I don't trust the outcome because there's so much about ourselves that we don't know.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And how we respond to things in the moment.
1: Yeah, we are, as a species, we really don't like not knowing, do we? We we really prefer to know things.
0: <laughs> right, that's a whole other thing, The that element of wanting to be in control. Yes. In a world where we can create the illusion of it, but... That sense of control really doesn't exist,
1: and that's that's what comes crumbling down with the unlearning process, mm-hmm. um, specifically around you, you know issues of privilege is, you know, okay, well, I thought my family got here by working hard and earning it. And that feels very controlled because that means if I work hard and I follow the rules, then everything great will happen to me. But wait, if the system is rigged and that's not really what happened and that's not what's going on, then that means I might not be in control of my own life because just because I follow all the rules and do everything quote unquote right doesn't mean that I'm in control of all the
0: unknown factors
1: that could come barreling out of closet doors,
0: right? Right. I think of why do bad things happen to good people? Right. Things like Mm -hmm. that, where it's like throwing a monkey wrench into that notion of order.
1: Right. And I think that that, when I have conversations with other white folks about white privilege and trying to sort of grapple with these issues, you know, so much that we talk about is about feelings right and feeling bad feeling guilty feeling like i'm a bad person feeling like i did something wrong and those conversations are really important i think for white people to have with one another and to sort of protect people of color from having to listen to all of that being unraveled but you know they are important things for us to unpack that said you know it's more complicated than just feeling bad, right? So yes, we need to take responsibility for our own implications in the systems we live in. And we need to put a boundary up so that we don't suddenly take responsibility for the entire history of white supremacy across the world, right? So there's, there's a balance.
0: Right. We don't want to be Atlas. <laughs> no. So where do you see yourself going now? What's next for you? And what are you most interested in? What's most important to you and what's most enticing? Hmm. Because you're about to graduate.
1: I am, yes. Well, I am about to start a new job. I'll be doing tenant organizing in New York City for a year with an AmeriCorps program called Public Allies. And so I'll be working on issues of tenant harassment and gentrification and displacement and, you know, trying to protect people's rights to stay in their own homes. Um, So I have a ton to learn. I'm new to the city. I'm new to housing work specifically. And I'm really excited by that opportunity and by the exposure I'll get both to community organizing, but also to legal work. I'll be collaborating with housing attorneys a lot. And I love teaching. I'm excited about the idea of hopefully getting to Be participating in education at some point again in the future. I love psychology. We didn't really get to touch on internal family systems, but that's something that I am really excited about learning more about and really bringing into my life and into my work. So yeah, I mean the work continues. It's never over, and I'm so grateful that I was able to finish my education. And I'm excited to see what happens next.
0: Mm. It's been wonderful having you on.
1: Thank you so much. It's been great talking with you.
0: Yeah, likewise. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. So, I've been speaking with Lena Sklove. You're graduating this Sunday here yes, at Goddard, absolutely. And you wrote this beautiful novel. Someday we'd go back. Mm-hmm. Mm. Is this going to get published? Is this something that you intend to put out there, or
1: I don't know. <laughs> I was so focused getting it done and finishing my my bachelor's degree that I think I need to put it away for a little while and. See what feels right to me about how to share it with the world. So, I don't know that yet. Stay tuned. <laughs> hmm. I am
0: happy. And that's it for this magical mystery tour. Thank you all so much for listening. Until next time, have a great week. on